You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. Hi, everyone. This is Station F, the podcast. I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. Our guest today is Dylan Fields, co-founder and CEO of Figma, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have him with us. His background is incredible. Dylan first started working on the web-based design tool back in 2012 as a student at Brown. He since went on to drop out of school, score a Theo Fellowship that kicked off the story of Figma. The eight-year-old company has raised over $130 million to date with the likes of Sequoia, Kleiner, Greylock, Index, and the most recent investors are Andreessen Horowitz, who recently contributed to the $50 million D round that was closed at the end of April. So we'll get a chance to catch up with Dylan on building one of the hottest collaborative design tools and what it's like to raise funding during COVID. All right, Dylan, great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's hard trying to decide what specifically we should talk about. So we'll just, we'll do everything. <laughs> that sounds great. I'm, I'm really excited. I mean, I, I went to Station F um, mid-2019. Ah, uh, nice. And um, met, I don't know if he's still there, but uh, Jean de la Rochard. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm butchering his last name, so please, I apologize. Perfect. But um, But no, it was, I got the full tour and I was so impressed. And so I'm just like thrilled to be able to be part of um, any effort that you have because it's a it's an amazing place. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, I didn't realize you'd actually been to Station F, so that's really cool to hear. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the hub of tech in France. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as far as I can yeah, tell. I'm glad you got that part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. So there's a lot of things that we want to cover with you. Um, obviously, you guys have recently announced some pretty exciting funding, which is part Thank of the you. reason we wanted to have you here today. But I think before, um, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the backstory about not only how you founded Figma and why, mm -hmm. but also what were you doing prior? <laughs> sure. Well, prior to Figma, I was an intern. So I, I grew up in Northern California in one country, and neither of my parents were technical uh, but I was really lucky to uh, go to high school with somebody who um, his dad was an IT guy at O'Reilly Media. And so that was my first tech job was as an intern at O'Reilly Media, which is a company that kind of makes um, educational materials. They used to do a lot of conferences uh, for tech. And from there, had a chance to do internships at uh, Microsoft, well, uh, research assistantship at Microsoft Research, as well as internships at LinkedIn and Flipboard. Uh, twice at Flipboard, actually. And I was studying computer science and math at Brown, but starting to get more interested in design. And so the second internship at Flipboard was a six-month internship where I went and was trying to figure out, um, you know, maybe I want to focus my studies more on product or design rather than engineering, but ended up accidentally dropping out and starting Figma instead. Because they got obsessed with the space. I love that. Accidentally dropping out. How do you accidentally <laughs> drop out? <laughs> well, I, I, was, uh, I was already thinking about it um, because I met my now co-founder at Brown. He was my TA. Uh, his name is Evan Wallace, and you know he's one of the most amazing programmers of our generation. And I don't say that lightly, <laughs> um, he's, but he's absolutely incredible and also just a humble, um, wonderful human. And we, uh, I thought there might be a chance to work on a company with him because he's about to graduate, whereas I was a, a junior and he was a senior. 
And so we started talking about it sort of in the abstract of like, what might we do? And uh, I didn't think the conversations would go anywhere, but just in case I applied for the Teal Fellowship and, you know, then went to, for the spring semester, went to Flipboard for the six month internship. As that was happening, uh, we kind of kept going through the rounds of the Teal Fellowship, uh, kept progressing in their process and also kept progressing our kind of conviction around, wow, like we actually do want to build something together. You know, I think Evan started to realize that all the big company jobs he might get, uh, you know, were all going to be pretty boring. And so he was much more interested in like solving a meaty technical challenge. And, um, and so we, we, uh, we basically at some point said, okay, you know, with or without the Teal Fellowship, we're going to do this. Thankfully got the Teal Fellowship, which was a way for us to have the financial support um, to go do this. And then uh, started full-time August, 2012 or so. Uh, and from there, it was a lot of iteration, um, you know, many moments of despair. We didn't know, we had a, had a thesis around that WebGL, which is a way to use the GPU in your computer in the browser. We thought that WebGL would make it so that all creative tools could be able to built online. Um, but you know, we had this giant question of where do we start? And uh, it took us about maybe nine months or so to really get to a point where we're kind of vaguely in the direction of what Figma is today, even though you know, I had seen at Flipboard firsthand the problems of design collaboration. Uh, I think, you know, it, it took us a while to open our minds to realize that we could solve those problems as well. That's incredible. So uh, going from dropping out to getting the fellowship and then finally launching this. So we're talking like 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, has the premise changed from the beginning? It's been like eight years. Has it, has it changed at all during that time? I think it went through iterations. I wouldn't say, I think like at a high level, no, but definitely yes in terms of practicality. So, uh, you know, at an abstract level, Figma has always been about uh, making creativity and design accessible to everyone. Our vision statement today is make design accessible to all. Um, In the beginning, you know, we weren't sure exactly what creative tool we would build. And I think that at first we were more focused on the accessibility aspect and the collaboration aspect although collaboration has been a theme across Figma as well, even in the beginning. Um, so I think the sort of general arc of how things have changed over time was, you know, the first sort of six to nine months was a lot of building experiments, uh, you know, iterating our way through sort of existential despair to figure out um, how we uh, might, you know, make creative tools that anyone could use. And then from there, uh, really focusing more into photo editing uh, realizing though that we were doing a photo editing tool in the browser, and you know this is now early 2013, we thought, wait a second, uh, if we do a photo editing tool in the browser, why would anyone use that? Because if you look at camera sales, the sort of the graph of camera sales is at this inflection point and like it's almost concave down. Uh, whereas if you look at megapixels uh, over time, that's like on this exponential incredible trend. Everyone is going to use the camera that's on them. Uh, in their pocket all the time. And so if we want to actually build a photo editing tool, we should do it on mobile. So the browser is the wrong space. And then also that's going to be a commodity. And so then it was, okay, well, maybe kind of photo editing to Photoshop. Um, and then from there, we thought, okay, well, Photoshop has a lot of use cases. What's a use case we, wanna, we really want to focus on at first? And that's when we thought, okay, well, we've always meant to export interface design. Perhaps it's the time. And uh, almost instantly, we realized that this was not only a huge pain point for people, which we'd seen firsthand, but, uh, but then starting to talk to people, we truly realized how much that was an issue. 
and then also started to understand how bad the collaboration experience was. Um, and then finally, the last piece of the puzzle for us was realizing that, wow, this market's huge and growing. Uh, you know, as the entire economy shifts to becoming digital, as every business in the world has a digital aspect to it, the way that we create our products, the way that we do our design, that is going to be the way that people win or lose as a business. And therefore, design is no longer about this, um, you know, sort of putting lipstick on the pig, if you will. Uh, it's not like an afterthought. Rather, it's a core part of the process and everyone should care about it. Yeah, I think uh, you're hitting it exactly right on the head. I think we'll talk about kind of the shift uh, in just a moment. But I want to come back to something that you said because I found it really interesting. You kind of sure. um, mentioned a lot of the numbers and the trends and kind of this this opportunity. Did you guys approach this as purely opportunity-based or did the idea actually stem from something else? Well, I think first and foremost, we looked at what technologies are changing the world and what technologies are interesting to us personally. Uh, and so, you know, the very, very beginning of Figma, if we zoom all the way back to like the first time that Evan and I were having dinner and talking about, should we go do something together? Uh, I think that the, the two core technologies that we're excited about at that exact moment were WebGL and drones. And this is, you know, kind of late 2011. And, um, you know, Evan convinced me very quickly that drones was a terrible idea because of regulation, because, you know, hardware is difficult to build and maintain all sorts of reasons. There's that, that's not great. And then also the only ideas we could think about for drones were very privacy invasive. So then it was, okay, let's go focus on WebGL. But to your question about opportunity, you know, I sort of think that there's like this mad libs of entrepreneurship uh, that a lot of people go through. Um, you know, you kind of have people ask questions like, okay, what's the problem you're solving? You know, who are you solving it for? What's your target market? Uh, how much will they pay you? And then also, why are you better than the competitors? Why will they pay you? And then if you kind of multiply target market size by how much they pay you, then hopefully that equals like a really big number and the VCs get excited because it could be like this billion dollar business, et cetera. Um, and I think Evan and I just did not go through that process. Um, you know, later on, as we started to evaluate the different things we'd already explored, perhaps we applied more of that framework, but, you know, we were much more building things that we thought were interesting and meaningful for the world. Uh, you know, I think that the times where we were strategic and looked at opportunities at the expense of meaning were the times that we felt the lowest, to be honest. For example, uh, you know, I had this like strategy I came up with at some point early on where it had been maybe two or three months in, we were feeling like, you know, we just had to ship something. And, you know, we know, knew we wanted to do creative tools at the time we thought probably more of a consumer community bent um, rather than more of an enterprise bent. And so we thought, okay, if we could make a meme generator uh, that might mean that people could find us, we'd build SEO, and then from there, other people would use our creative tools. And we looked at the meme generation market, and man, all the meme generators were terrible. Uh, and so we spent this week building a meme generator, and it's actually a pretty good meme generator. But then at the end of the week, I think we both looked at each other, and it was like, wow, like, what are we doing with our lives? Uh, this has no meaning to us, and like, we're both ready to quit. And so, um, uh, I don't know. I think meaning always came before opportunity for us. Super. I, I love it. And I, I had to laugh when you talked about the drones opportunity. 
street. Poor people working on drones. Um, it's it's no, still I, a very interesting space. And it's just that we lacked imagination to figure out anything that wasn't privacy invasive. And I think we both care a lot about privacy. No, super. I think I think you're exactly right. Um, so you mentioned kind of kind of the evolution of uh, of how people work, um, and I'm assuming that obviously what we've been experiencing the last few months yeah. has impacted you guys a lot. Tell me what you guys have observed. Man, um, well, I mean, I think there's sort of different aspects of this, right? There's uh, sort of as a leader of the organization, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about sort of how we've adapted to COVID and what that's meant for us, but. I'm assuming you mean more of our market in the macro world. And so uh, on that topic, I'd say the first thing that we saw was, you know, in addition to an increase in signups and, you know, people really um, just being even more excited, deals sort of moving faster because people realized for the first time for some of them that, wow, like this is not only a, a nice to have, but a necessity to be able to have design in the cloud and have it be collaborative by default. That's just so important to, working in a remote team. Um, the, the thing that started to shock me was the way that our engagement changed. And one thing that we track as an organization is we look at the number of days out of seven that you use our product. Uh, and in aggregate, uh, it's interesting to see sort of the trends and you know when people are more engaged, less engaged, et cetera. Um, we started to see this huge spike in people transitioning from like using Figma one to four days out of seven in the week to using it five to seven days out of the week. And I think it was just because uh, you know, people were stuck at home. They didn't have anything else to do. Work was solace. And you went back to work as a way to uh, you know, fill the time. And it was a little concerning, but um, you know, our multiplayer sessions also went up dramatically. We saw a huge spike there. Cost some service availability issues. People were very unhappy about that, even more so than usual. Um, and so... You know, for us, we've then had to exp- to also respond by making sure that we double down our infrastructure and that we're doing everything we can to, uh, you know, meet the demands of our customers in this time. Super. Have you seen any like crazy use cases that you wouldn't have? Oh been- yeah. Sorry, I just got excited. I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> yeah, tell me what. What have you seen? <laughs> oh man. So I think because everyone is starting to use, not everyone, but a lot of people are starting to use Figma that didn't before, and also people are starting to use it for all these different things. We're now seeing people do stuff like that's very much sort of outside the realm of interface design in Figma. So we're seeing people do a lot of like diagramming, whiteboarding, slide creation, illustration, uh, but also some like really radical stuff. Like we've seen people make gardens of links. We've seen people uh, do, um, one of my favorites was this work from home city, uh, where basically people you know, missing the kind of like physical community that was around uh, made a sort of virtual Silicon Valley in Figma. And it was a collaborative exercise. So all these different people came into the file and helped out. And uh, then they started to expand into other cities because obviously, you know, we're, we're talking, uh, I'm talking with you at Station F, like the, what, what a great example of how Silicon Valley is not the only place in the world where you can build technology. And so people started to build all these other cities and their tech centers uh, on the same map. And it just became this beautiful uh, exploration of, of how technology uh, lives in a physical space, but in a digital space, which was super trippy and awesome. So we're seeing uh, all sorts of things and uh, it's been fascinating. I think one of the things that's been also really cool is seeing people share in our uh, Figma community. This is a newer effort for us, but we're basically trying to make it so that there's this digital commons that you can contribute to where people can add their designs in a 
uh, basically license them with CC4, which is Creative Commons 4. And that means that anyone can then remix, reuse your design as long as they attribute back to you if they publish it out. And we're seeing a lot more adoption there as well and people starting to engage more and contribute back to the community that way. Awesome. Wow. That's a, that's a lot of creativity in one place. Um, I'm interested also, like what, what has happened to the numbers during this time? You talked about engagement over a week, but have you also just seen the user numbers explode? Um, I'd say, I'd say it's been really good. I think our numbers were already super strong. And so then like a little bit more strength on top of that, uh, you know, it still seems strong. I wouldn't say it's like such a dramatic explosion effect. Um, you know, I, I think that there's, for example, the the engagement stats I mentioned, you just saw this kind of like dramatic hockey stick right when shelter in place took place. Instead, I think we're seeing more of these uh, gradual effects where people are are switching over more. And, uh, and then also on the sales side, we're seeing deals close faster because people have real pain uh, and they need to solve it. Interesting. Super. Well, that leads me obviously to talk about uh, what the investors were interested in. I'm guessing it's a lot of this. Um, so you have an incredible like list of investors. It's like the who funds. <laughs> Greylock, Kleiner, Sequoia, now Andreessen with the latest round. Um, I'd love to just back up and not talk about the latest round first, but just give sure. us a sense of, even from the days of seed, which I don't even think I mentioned index on this list. Mm -hmm. uh, what was raising like with your first round? So, I mean, I, I think that it was really, I was really helped and in a very privileged position because uh, I already had internships in Silicon Valley. And in particular, I had a really great internship at LinkedIn. Um, and at LinkedIn, uh, you know, I had to, I got to, it was sort of smaller at the time. It was, I don't know, maybe 300, 400 people when I started. And that summer, um, I was working on the skills product or what's now the skills product. And, you know, it hadn't been launched yet. So it was very much just kind of exploring what do we do with this awesome data set? We knew for every person on LinkedIn, here are the skills that they have. And then also for every skill, who are the best people in the world for that skill? And, you know, we did all sorts of explorations. We looked at how do you create trend graphs? We looked at educational stuff. What ended up sticking, of course, is the micro recommendations that you see on LinkedIn where, you know, maybe perhaps your, your aunt endorses you for Python. But one of the things we explored in that summer was... Uh, this idea of LinkedIn for good and how to make it so that you could connect people to nonprofits based on skills. Uh, because we had this amazing member network across the world. And if we could start to get more of them to be involved in nonprofits, what an amazing opportunity that could be. And um, during my internship, sort of towards the end, uh, LinkedIn had its first hack day. They call it an in day. And um, I got a chance to work with one of the execs to really rally um, the team and we got maybe 10 to 15 percent of the company or something like that to work on this linkedin for good effort with us uh, and through that got exposure to all hands and also to jeff wiener the ceo and jeff had you know was very generous and said hey you know do you want to drop out and join linkedin i said i'm a freshman i don't think that's in the cards right now and uh maybe i want to start a company later and he said well you know if you start a company let me know and at least that's the way I remember it. I think the way that Jeff remembers it is his version of the story is like, if you start a company, let me know and I'll fund it, which is an even better story. Uh, but um, anyway, a few years later, you know, we're starting Figma and uh, starting to think about raising money. And so I emailed Jeff and said, hey, I'd love to show you some of the things that we've been working on. And uh, Jeff replied, we got on a call. I sent him some videos beforehand, actually. And um, 
you know, he was like, wow, this is, this is awesome. Uh, and I'm in obviously, and, uh, you know, who do you want to meet in Silicon Valley? Who are the VCs you want to talk with? And I said, I wasn't prepared for this question at all. I had no idea this is how the conversation was going to go. And so I said, well, Jeff, I, you know, um, I'm really curious to hear how, who you think I should meet. And he's like, wow, that's great. No one ever asked me that question. Uh, and so he then listed off, you know, all this, this amazing list of VCs and, um, you know, I kind of researched them and then for uh, a large portion of that list, asked them to make introductions. And that was very helpful in terms of uh, meeting people for the first place in the seed round, because VCs in Silicon Valley are usually looking for a warm introduction and an intro from a CEO is especially helpful. Uh, one of the people I met through that process was Danny Reimer. And Danny, uh, I think Danny understood within an hour of me pitching Figma, he understood Figma better than I did at the time. Uh, they already came in prepared with a thesis around how, uh, you know, not only SaaS tools were going to explode in the enterprise, but also how important the creative class was and creativity in general. Um, and I think that Figma fit right into that thesis. And so that night he called us up and said, we'd love to invest. Uh, we did some references on them and then we moved forward from there and they've been a partner ever since. And Index has been incredible as a partner for Figma. Super. Wow. That's an incredible story. And I, I'd love to know what who else is on Jeff's secret list. Sounds <laughs> like a really good trick for people, uh, you know, to actually ask as well. Who who do you think that I should be meeting, and not always just come with their own list? So very good approach. Um, now I think we want to turn to the more recent round, which I'm guessing is sure. completely different. Oh yeah. Um, also, if I'm not mistaken, you guys actually closed this latest round like during lockdown. We did, yeah. That's insane. So walking. <laughs> whole process when did it start how was it a remote round like how did how did it work yeah it was all remote i'd have to check the dates on when it started but um we were a few weeks into shelter in place if i remember correctly and um and basically it went from first meeting to you know money in the bank and announced in a month which was the most aggressive timeline we've ever had for a round uh i think you know first i had a few takeaways from it um First and foremost, just to back up a bit, I think for anyone listening, you know, a Series D fundraise is just a lot different from an earlier stage fundraise. In an earlier stage fundraise, you're pitching the vision. You're saying, here's why this market's important. Here's why we're you know, really changing the fundamentals of the market and why our product is going to be so defensible and, and amazing. Um, whereas later on, as the business evolves, you have real data to point to. And by the time you're at Series D, uh, yes, you know, the vision is obviously still important, but, um, you know, you can kind of send a data sheet over and people will go, wow, I like those numbers or, eh, maybe not. Um, and, uh, and so I think thankfully the numbers we had were really strong, uh, and, you know, despite COVID, uh, you know, we had already built these relationships with people, um, and sort of like more out of a sense of trying to understand who we, we wanted as partners and that way we could hit the ground running, uh, start a fundraise process and very quickly converge. Wow, incredible. Um, I'm just curious, like you talked a lot about how a D round compares to an earlier round, but how does a remote round compare to a regular round? You know, it's, um, for me, I felt like it was very similar. I think for some of our investors though, uh, I think they're a bit tripped out by it because uh, so much of the process of talking with investors, it's almost like dating right? Uh, you're trying to really get a sense of like, are we compatible? Like, is this going to be a long-term relationship? And uh, meeting someone in person is obviously, you know, usually a key part of that. 
Um, that said, uh, I think that, you know, we've learned that a lot of things that we previously thought could only be done offline, they can be do- done online too. And, you know, it's I, like, I definitely was still able to build relationships, even with new investors during the round, uh, based on just long conversations over Zoom. Uh, and I don't think I would have expected that was possible pre-COVID, uh, but that's the new normal. And I think it might even be here to stay because a lot of VCs that I've talked with uh, that are friends um, are, you know, they're, they're all over the world now. <laughs> they're enjoying, you know, the flexibility of being able to work from Hawaii or whatever. And uh, it's, um, I, I think that a lot of them are not going to move back. And so we might, I hope that we have a much more distributed financial infrastructure uh, for innovation going forward over the next, you know, five or 10 years. But who knows? We'll see. Yeah, I agree with you. I think um, it's funny. We actually did one of the podcast episodes, um, maybe the last one or two on remote investing. We caught up with some investors Mm -hmm. and deals. And it's exactly what you say. It's pretty much just like dating. And we talked about um, how getting to know somebody through completely digital means also requires maybe sometimes getting personal really quickly. Yep. You know, there's things that you can't see, so you're trying to test for it differently. We had some people talk about also the fact that it's digital just means that speed is totally an element and you can go a lot faster, which is something that sounds like also also played in your latest deal. Um, totally. Are those that you also experienced? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think that the, the speed part too, um, I will say that that was counterbalanced for us because I think we were in a place where the economy was so uncertain at the time. Not that it's not uncertain now, I think. Now it's just uncertain in different ways, but uh, at the time it was actively frightening. We know we're kind of seeing a lot of market crashes. And so many other people were also trying to raise money. And I think there's a bit of an influx there. And so uh, it was interesting to see that, you know, it, it moved fast, even though there was a lot of volume on the other side too. Super. Well, now I'm actually also curious because we've talked a lot about how the product has changed and funding. I'm also just wondering, like, as a company, as the leader of your organization, um, how do you see things in terms of remote work? We're hearing about so many new trends, people getting rid of the office, you know, people wondering if Silicon Valley is going to stay relevant in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you stand on all of this? Oh, man, it's, it is a complex issue. And I think, first of all, anyone who tells you they know the, the future here is, is full, of, uh, full of it. So... <laughs> Um, I won't. I won't make any claims uh, or predictions, but or I'll I'll try not to. I might make a few. But um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, first of all, I think that um, you know, I, I think that it's going to be very hard for people to transition back. I think it's going to be very stress-inducing. Um, we recently surveyed our employees, and over seventy-five percent of our employee base commutes to the office. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, if you think about all the sort of dangers that go into a commute um, with a, in a COVID world, that's going to be really hard to open back up and make sure that people feel safe. And so uh, that's the one thing is just, you know, re-entry is going to be tough. I think another one is, um, you know, I think that the workforce overall is going to uh, likely demand more flexibility. Um, I don't think that's the end of Silicon Valley. I think that there's a lot of people here and a lot of infrastructure here that uh, isn't necessarily going away. At the same time, um, you know, most of the companies that 
I'm seeing get started right now uh, are outside of Silicon Valley, or or even if there's some founders in Silicon Valley, they're also looking to bring on remote people. And that was happening pre-COVID. Like that was happening a year ago even. Uh, and now with COVID, obviously, you know, why wouldn't you hire someone remote if you can find uh, someone better or someone that's maybe not going to, um, maybe it's not going to be as costly because Silicon Valley is is such a high price of living. Um, I, you know, I do think that people, even as they scale up their companies, uh, employees also just, they have real life goals around starting families, buying a house. These are these traditional goals that are hard to accomplish in San Francisco. And so I do think that whether it's, um, you know, a hub based approach and people are going to be more global and they are, uh, going to sort of like branch out outside of Silicon Valley that way, or if it's more of like a flexible remote type type strategy or a combination of both, uh, I do think that we'll start to see more there. Interesting. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. It probably has been a question on people's mind uh, pre-COVID, um, and now it's just starting to materialize, maybe a little bit faster and more visibly. Yep. Um, I am wondering though, just in terms of the Figma team, are you guys all based in the Bay Area, or do you also have teams elsewhere? Mostly, um, we are. Uh, until recently, like until earlier this year, we were almost all based in SF with a smattering of people across North America and a few people in Amsterdam. Uh, starting to think more about our Europe presence, though, and so we're excited to uh, expand more into the Europe market as well. Good. I think Europe is excited to have you expand more. Into well, thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, well, I think we've talked a lot. We've covered a lot of ground. I want to end on a note kind of more about a surprise that you've had along your entire journey as an entrepreneur, maybe a learning, something that you weren't expecting. Um, it can be good or bad. So mm-hmm. what you could... Uh, come up with for our listeners? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that there's a lot of different skills that go into entrepreneurship. And uh, as a young person starting a company, you know, I, again, I had only had internships before I was, uh, you know, a self-declared CEO. Um, the, uh, uh, I, I think that, you know, I just didn't know the basics about management. And it's really important to support and empower your people. Uh, and so if you are a first time CEO, uh, you know, you, you really, I would just really encourage you to read up on management, find some mentors and not assume that just because you can lead, uh, it means that you are going to be a management expert from day one too. If your company's going well, it'll grow fast. The management challenges will get more complex, uh, and you owe it to your people to, to really grow in this area. That, that definitely deserves for me to ask a follow-up question. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so I think you mentioned reading, uh, getting mentors. What did, what did you read? Who did you talk to? Where did this come from in, in your story? Well, so one common misconception about mentorship is that it has to be people that are kind of above you. And yes, that, that's also really helpful. Um, you know, like Jeff, for example, that I mentioned earlier, he's been a great mentor as well as you know, many of our board members. But um, I've also gotten a lot of mentorship from people that we've hired. And so, for example, one of our first hires is a man named Sho Kumoto. And Sho uh, is somebody who was coming from like a, a very long uh, career in creative tools. He had worked at Macromedia, Adobe. He worked at Medium. He founded his own company a few times uh, before joining Figma as a director of engineering for us. And now he's a director of product as well. And uh, um, when he joined the team, he taught me so much about how to empower people, 
how to you know really uh, motivate and uh, sort of set roadmap in a way that was you know we were we have been going for so long and uh, you know years without shipping yet and we're getting closer but it felt like a bit of a death march and um, he was just a, a key mentor and also reported to me and so I think you you know by being humble by recognizing that you know if you can hire people that can teach you that's a good thing not a, not something to be worried about that can also be a, a good strategy. Super. And now just a final question to end on this topic, because I love talking about management and especially yeah. managers. We have a lot of them at Station F. Um, I'm wondering, like, what is maybe an experience that you went through as a manager that you wish you had had advice for, you wish you had been prepared for, and something that you would tell people that may be confronted with that situation today? Well, this is going to be a heavy note to end on, but, um, you know, a few years into Figma, my dad died. And um, the, you know, it was a multiple year battle with cancer. It was, it was really tough. And, you know, I think at that point in my life and career, I didn't know that I could be vulnerable and share that with my team as much. And so there's a few people I talk with about it, but overall, you know, a lot of people in my team didn't know what I was even going through there. And uh, in addition to all the management challenges I was just talking about before, uh, the sort of like added stress of, um, you know, trying to help my mom as a, as a, as a caretaker and be there emotionally for both of them and, and spend time with my dad in his last days, uh, you know, that, that was really tough. And um, I think the learning that and takeaway that I've had since is that uh, your team is there for you just like you're there for them. And it's important to be vulnerable as a leader. It's important to share your struggles um, because other people are looking to help and you're all together in it. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you uh, for everything that you've shared on the podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Thanks, Dylan. Oh, thank, thank you. And, and uh, thank you for all the work you're doing at Station F. I think it's uh, an amazing contribution to the tech ecosystem. Super. Come back and see us soon. I can't wait. All right, everyone, thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a topic or a person to feature, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. And finally, be sure not to miss on our next podcast episodes. We're available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and Google. See you soon.